Hey there, I'm Krista, your host for the Birding Tools Podcast. Each week, I'll delve into the wonderful world of birds for birding beginners and those wanting to get the lowdown on what goes into bird watching and identifying birds. Let's get started. First, I wanted to let you know that I have a free guide to learning all about bird identification. After going through this workbook, you'll know about the five keys to bird identification, size and shape, color and pattern, behavior, habitat and distribution, and sound. When you understand the main components of identifying a bird, you'll begin to feel more confident with your birding and identification skills. This process will not just help you with identifying birds by sight and sound easier, but it will also help deepen your connection with nature. To get this free guide, just visit the podcast show notes at birdingtools.com. This week on the Birding Tools podcast, I am joined by Rob Porter, naturalist and host of the Songbirding podcast. Rob is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to birding by both sight and sound, so it's no wonder that he's participated in many Christmas bird counts. I won't keep you waiting. Let's dive into the episode. Hello, Rob. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. I really appreciate you being here. Oh, no problem. It's great to, great to be here. So I'm really looking forward to getting to chat with you more today. We are going to be talking about the Christmas bird count, how people can get involved, and how birders can even start their own Christmas bird count in their area. But before we do get started, I want to say that I love your podcast, Songbirding. Okay. It, it, it really transports me into the scene of the habitats and the birds that you're hearing outside. So I really appreciate the sound quality that you provide and just the transportation into the habitats that you're walking in. So I love that. Oh, that's great. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, of course. And so you're a wealth of knowledge about birds. And I'd really love for you to share with everyone just really quickly how you got started in the birding world. Yeah. I mean, I've, you know, growing up, I had the field guides, lived on a farm, but wasn't really a birder. I didn't really know that was a thing. Didn't have the binoculars or all that. But later on, like, you know, when digital cameras got cheaper, started taking a few photos here and there, nature photos. They were just the like the four time zoom one. So you didn't create photos. So I'd have interest here and there. Oh, what's this bird or whatever. But it wasn't really until I found something like eBird that it really kind of took off for me. Because sure. then I could actually look up what is around where you can go to find things. And just being able to post a photo online and get someone to tell you what something is in a now in the matter of seconds these days, but you know, <laughs> Even just in the early days, getting an answer in a day or two was great compared to, I'm sure, if you were doing that and before internet days, you'd have to wait to meet up with someone and give them a description. There's no way you'd have a photo. So finding out what you're looking at, it's a long haul to learn all that. Yeah. So I would say more around probably 2010 to 2012, I started doing more and getting more involved using eBird as a tool to get to know what I'm looking at. And Photography got so much better around those years. The zoom cameras, they, you could put one in your pocket, those 20 times zoom. You know, sure, it wouldn't win any prizes, but you could get identify what you're looking at. And well, that's you have key some beautiful photos, though. Oh, yeah, and that's, that's from over the years I upgraded here and there. Got some of the better zoom cameras. And now I've got one that has 65 times reach. And that's just, you know, it's amazing that you can basically get a really clear photo now without thousands of dollars of gear anymore. So Yeah. Well, and I think that photography is such a special way to capture birds. Too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like got involved in the local naturalist club and later became a, a trip leader and a board member. And so 
been heavily involved in that. And then later on, I also got involved with, as a board member, I discovered that we had, uh, it's a really successful club. It just celebrated its centennial last year. So been around for a very long time, the Hamilton Naturalist Club. And we, you know, in the course of being on the board for a while, I discovered we've got these budget items that haven't been touched in ages. We have this research budget that was set aside thousands of dollars. No one's ever touched. So I thought, why don't I take a few hundred out of that doing bioacoustic project? Cause those things are getting so cheap to do. So got some devices from Cornell recording at our sanctuaries because the club owns several sanctuaries, get to know the owls and other species coming through. And so that got me more into the audio stuff and more or less led to the idea behind the podcast songbirding. But before that, I had this podcast that I haven't updated in a while, but it's just purely field recordings uninterpreted from our automated field recording units called Songscapes. And that one is mostly from these Cornell boxes, things like owls, ducks even. Actually, we have a flooded forest in one of our sanctuaries. I was able to put the thing up there and get wood ducks wow. as they are passing through past past the uh, trees on the water and all that. And frogs as well, too. So amphibians you pick up. Uh, coyotes, lots of coyotes. So oh, not cool. just birds. Yeah. Yeah. So, so lots of things you can pick on bioacoustics, but mostly birds. And that project has evolved to the point now where there's half a dozen people involved. And one of our really keen individuals has figured out how to get BirdNet running locally, which is a machine learning program that can you can run through our tens of thousands of hours of recordings. And it'll tell you an estimate of what birds we have, like species. And so we can go back and review and see what whether it's right or not. And so, yeah, a lot of fun things. I love that. Yeah. And I, that, it just seems like such a diverse set of skills too, that you've learned also over the years as ways to appreciate birds. So I think that's really cool. Yeah. It, you know, it just comes from after a while for me, I get, it's not that I get bored of things. It's just, I find something else new to, you know, try out that maybe if nobody else is doing this other thing, I want to see, you know, why isn't anyone trying this? Why don't I try it? See what's happening. So I was kind of surprised there wasn't any other bird podcasts that really emphasize solely bird song other than I think bird note does that with their kind of mini ones, but it's kind of short yeah. few minute ones. And uh, the songbirding one came out of like several ideas I had that I just didn't have time to do. One of which was kind of like birding tools, like a beginner birding type thing, but I just didn't have the time to go through it and came about from one day. I thought, well, let's just tackle one part of it, go out in the field, record some things because I thought that would be a good segment portion of it. But then I realized in doing that, I was like, well, this could be the entire thing and I'd be okay because it'd be easier to produce for me because I'm already going out anyways. So why not record? And then it's just the editing time. That's it. And so Yes. Well, and like I said, it's just the most fun to listen to all That's the different great. songs and hearing you walk through. I mean, you could close your eyes and, and sort yeah. of picture being in that habitat, which I think makes it really special. Cool. Yeah. And I'm very glad that it's taken off and I'm hoping to see more people do that kind of podcast someday. So, cause I'd love to hear what the West coast sounds like, for example, or, yeah. or just someone else's take on things. It'd be fun to hear. So yeah. Well, maybe I can get some tips from you and <laughs> try, try it out yeah. here on the West coast. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. That'd be great. Well, so yeah, let's get into the Christmas bird count a little bit. Thank you so much for sharing that too, Rob. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Well, no problem. So I've never actually participated in a Christmas bird count. And uh, do we abbreviate Christmas bird count to CBC? Do you yeah, know? usually. Uh, it's okay. a little confusing here in Canada where we also have the CBC network as well. So <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> a lot of context switching when you're talking to people. 
<laughs> yeah. Which CBC are you talking about? But yes, Chris's bird count, CBC generally is the accepted acronym for that. Okay. All right. So the CBC. So how many have you been involved with so far? Oh boy. Okay. Good question. I got started, I think in 2013, 2014 with the Hamilton one here. And I think I only did one that year, but then in future years, there were years where I was doing as many as five and as little as three in a year. Wow. So over the course of probably six years times, let's say three minutes, I've probably done like 25 or so by now. Wow. At this point. So with the five in one year, was that just with different organizations or different locations? That were different locations. Um, okay. I'm in Southern Ontario where there is a ton of Christmas bird count circles. So if you have lots of time in the holidays, you can do one every day practically. I think the only day there isn't one going on is Christmas Day itself. Oh, that's that's great too, because if somebody really wants to just kind of blitz while they're on their holiday yeah. around Christmas time, then that's the perfect time to do it. Yeah. Can you give a little bit of background about what the Christmas bird count is or CBC? I'm going to try and use the acronym so that I can oh, remember. Way. That's good. <laughs> um, so it's evolved over the years. It started in 1900, kind of evolved from this tradition of doing side hunts during Christmas. So people would hunt birds in the 19th century around Christmas, but with the extinction of the passenger pigeon, it became a lot less fashionable to do something like that. And this idea of just counting them came about. And that's where this kind of evolved out of. So it's one of the longest, yeah, I think it is the longest running citizen science project starting in 1900. And so this is 121st year, I think now. And yeah, it uh, has grown exponentially over the years. But the modern equivalent of this, see, the problem happened then was that back then it was just where you could walk. You know, you counted where you could walk. Sure. But then when cars and stuff started coming in, the data started getting really weird because people would start somewhere and they'd drive for like 100 miles. And, you know, then does the data very good anymore? No, not really. So in the 50s, they introduced this concept of circles, which is a seven mile radius, I think it is, something like that. Anyways, it's a circle centered on a point. That way they standardize the location data. And so our an example of our local Hamilton one, which actually started in 1921, I think it is. Ooh. Yeah, it's our hundredth this year. We were going to have a whole thing for it, but coronavirus has kind of put a damper on that. Oh, so yeah. next year, 101st, we'll, we'll celebrate that one instead. If it's safe to do so then. Yeah. And so this year, it'll, a be, big milestone. <laughs> it'll be a big milestone. So with our circle, the standardization was to take a, a landmark locally, which is also used for the Naturalist Club as their standard study circle, a place called Dundurn Castle. So that's our center point. And then the circle goes from there and you plot it out in the map and that's what you use from then on. And all you have to do is just make sure if there's an overlap with another circle, you're just consistent year to year, whether you include it or exclude it. And basically a coordinator then basically has to dole out, separate the place into sectors, areas, so that people don't overlap and make sure that people note certain certain types of species you want to also make note of when it's flying overhead like bald eagles it might cut a cut right through your circle and four different people see the same bald eagle and all report it so there's little exceptions like that where you'll want to note a time and date um, on that so that a coordinator a compiler can sort out you know 
what's the minimum number of bald eagles in this area, for example. But in general, as a participant, you sign up and you get assigned an area to go to. And some circles, people sign up for the whole day and that's the way it goes. Some people sign up and they're like, I'll do an hour and the coordinator will figure out where you can do for an hour. Some people sign up and do their backyard because that's also valuable data too. So it varies circle to circle how it's done. It just has to be consistent generally year to year. Make sure you try to get as many birds as you can. That's wonderful. Yeah. And I thank you so much for all that detail too. I love it. And the whole circle system too, and just being able to collect Mm -hmm. data in that way, it seems like a really easy way for people who are managing Christmas bird counts also to try and allocate people to different sections and Yeah. If you're starting a new one, it's very easy. If you have a historical one, like the one here in Hamilton, which I'm coordinating right now, it can be a bit tricky because there is a lot of history behind our sectors and everything. So as urbanization happens and areas expand, you then have to really mess with the borders and you get We've got some of our sector borders are based on roads that don't exist anymore and things like that, but which are kind of fun. And sometimes you have people are like, I've done this sector for 40 years. I'm not moving kind of thing. So you have to manage a lot of, a lot of things that way, which is perfectly fine. That's like, it's a motivating factor for people to see what's going on year to year in one spot. Some people really love that. So, yeah. That's so interesting. I never thought about that too, just about how everything has changed over time. Because as you said, the CBC yeah. is going on, been going on for ages now. Yeah, exactly. So so for those who are just starting out, what's the best way to prepare for the CBC, for participating in the CBC or to get involved? So it depends if you're in Canada or the US. In the US, you go to audubon.org and you can basically follow their links to the Christmas bird count and sign, find your local one or find a local one. They're, depending on where you live, there might be multiple and one that works for the date you want to do it because they're all in 24 hour periods. They're on calendar dates. Everyone has to count the same day. Otherwise it's not so uh, rigid scientifically. And this, the time period runs, I think it's December 14th to January 4th. It'll be in that range of dates at some point. So you'll have you know, some that are often a lot of them will have regular dates year to year, as in, you know, the first Saturday after Christmas or always on the day after New Year's or something like that. Ours in Hamilton's always Boxing Day here. So the day after Christmas. Yeah. So you go either audubon.org or you go to birdscanada.org and you look for the Christmas bird count part of the site and you look for your local counts and you contact the coordinator basically. There's usually an email address or some other contact for them. There's one coordinator for the entire circle, as you mentioned, you have done. But then for the individual sectors, too, is there also a separate coordinator? Uh, Now, that depends on the count. Some counts will divide their sectors into sector leaders and divide their sectors into areas or whatever. You know, it all depends. I've participated in different kinds of counts, and it's really fascinating how different even just our region can be like the one I'm coordinating right now is a highly urbanized area with a lot of natural space as well. So it's involving more than hundred people. So we have to be very coordinated on it and for really sure. give clear directions to everything. Whereas I've done counts further north, you know, three, four hours north of here that are all wilderness and typically everyone meets at one central point, divvies up their areas, goes driving and there's, no way they can possibly cover everything in their area. They just do their best effort kind of thing because, you know, there aren't roads everywhere. There aren't trails everywhere. Whereas here in the city, it's there are pretty much trails and roads everywhere. So 
you're not going to miss much if you have enough people. Yeah. So it, it really varies whether you're given a sector leader to go with, or you're just given a strict, you know, like here's an area, submit the data direct to the, the coordinator or submit it okay. online. Sometimes some coordinators do online stuff. So, okay. which is going to okay. be very important this year. Yes, for sure. But that's good to know that there's at least one person who people can contact and then yeah. that person will direct them to yeah, whoever, exactly. if anything. So, okay, good. And just out of curiosity, can somebody bring a friend with them on oh, account? Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. We, in a typical year, we, in our kind of, we have an intake form. You just fill in online just to get a sense of, because I found when I took over our account uh, for coordination, it was a lot of emails. You can imagine with a hundred people, everyone's got the same, like, Hey, I want to join the count, but then I have questions for them. Like, what do you prefer? Where do you want to go? What's your skill level? All those kinds of things. So I turned that into a form that, you know, ask those kinds of questions. Do you want to be paired with someone who is a veteran birder so you can learn? Or are you a veteran birder and you want someone to come along with you to learn? Or you're a veteran birder and you prefer to bird alone? Because some people like it as a, you know, just today be on their own, relax, count birds. Or, you know, do you get around by bike? Do you get around by car? Do you walk? Do you take transit? Because I'm not going to give you somewhere out in the middle of like somewhere with no transit if you're taking transit. Do you need to carpool with someone? Questions like that, I tend to throw in an intake form so that it's a little easier <laughs> to coordinate. Those are great questions. I wouldn't have thought of some of those. Is that just a Google form that you use? Yeah, or? yeah. I oh, use Google forms so for that. easy. Just made up a form. and. <laughs> oh, that's great. And it's worked well, very well for several years now because I always have those questions for people and then I just have to wait for an email back and then I might have another follow-up question. So it gets, it can get confusing if you don't <laughs> get yes. it centralized like that. Yes. Well, those, those are really smart questions to ask because as you said, some of the locations might be more remote or might yeah. have roads or whatnot, or people have different abilities, but they still want to be able yeah. to go out. Yeah. And, and that's important too. Like if they need wheelchair access, they're not going to give them a trail that doesn't have that. Give them somewhere if they prefer standing in one spot, which is a thing you can do too. You can do a standing count somewhere, that kind of thing, or they just want to do their neighborhood. You know, I'll just make sure that if there's someone that typically does their neighborhood, I'll contact them and say, hey, can you give them this little area around where you normally do your count? You know. That's wonderful. Okay. Well, that's a good segue then too into my next question for you about if somebody is interested in starting up their own CBC, if they don't have one in their area, how they can yeah. go about doing that. So I've been involved with this a couple of times where there is one next to us called the peach tree bird count, which we started five years ago. And this came from kind of a I didn't realize I threw down a challenge during a board meeting, but apparently I did. When I, in during Hamilton Naturals Club bird, uh, uh, board meeting, I said, you know, I'm taking over the Christmas bird count. And I was doing a, you know, a look around the circles around us. And I noticed there's a gap, you know, within our normal study area that doesn't have a Christmas bird count circle that could be done someday. We just need to find a coordinator someday and we can do that. In fact, there was a couple circles that there's a couple spots where there could be circles. And I thought, oh, that'd be neat to do someday. I can't do that right now, but it'd be neat to do someday. There's other naturals clubs in the region, like the Kingston one, they run five counts um, wow. and they're a much smaller club. And there are other clubs that run two or three. And here we are, a 600 member club running one count. Now, mind you, for 100 years, but still just one count. So I thought, well, we could probably handle more. 
one of the other board members took it as a challenge and went, yeah, I'm just going to start one. How about this <laughs> circle here? And he emailed the Birds Canada coordinator for Christmas bird counts because their typical thing is they say, do a trial year first, make sure you can get 10 people. But they said, you know what? We know you can do it. Just go do it and give us the circle. And so we can put it in our system and let's do it, you know, and you got dozens of people to volunteer that year. Oh, and wonderful. it's been going for five years now in an area that's mostly country. It's in the Niagara region of Ontario in basically a gap in between the Hamilton one and the central Niagara count. It's a mix of woodlot and lakeshore. Yeah. And open, open country. So really different, even though it's right next door to our account. So yeah, it could be as easy as basically contacting the Audubon saying, hey, I want to start a circle. And they have that on the Audubon website as well, too. You want to start a circle, here's the person to contact. Perfect. So it's that easy. Just go to the yep. website and yep. contact them and let them know that yep. you're interested in starting one. All you really have to do is just make sure there isn't already a circle there and or active circle there. Because some, I think they do show on their system whether a circle has been active or not recently because you okay. could restart a previous count that has gone de defunct that's another thing that could happen so oh that's good to know and do they give you a, a specific protocol that you can then utilize while you're out in the field once you say hey i want to start this up and yeah so they'll give you some advice on like basically how things are counted there is this thing for example called count week and this is where you can add additional species to your list just without numbers so let's say, you know, the day after the Christmas bird count, uh, we almost never get turkey vultures during the count day, but they're always in the week because turkey vultures just start and you become a winter bird here, but they don't always fly through the circle the day of. So we didn't get any on count day, but it was there the day after or within that week. We can put it on our list of species that are classified as count week. So there's no number behind them. It's not like one, two, three, four, five or anything. It's just CW account week. And that just kind of that covers bases where, for example, bad weather, lack of resources, things like that might not cover certain species that are present, but just weren't counted. So like, let's say one year, somehow we miss all of the Carolina wrens somehow, but sure. it's still there in count week. It's, you know, that, that data still says, yeah, they're still there. Just people didn't notice them that day somehow. That's really good to know too, because that's one of the things too, I think, just trying to make sure you're staying standardized and yep. you're trying to collect the correct data. That's probably the part that might intimidate people the most about starting it. So it's yeah, that. exactly. And the, the tough part is getting all the data together. I've gone through several methods kind of transitionally over the years. We, when I started, it was Excel spreadsheets. Okay. Um, yeah, there was this master spreadsheet that you sent everyone and they filled in their area and you had to do these complicated merges on Excel and all that. Wow. And I'm still more or less using spreadsheets, but I'm doing online ones instead now. Okay. So I'm using Google Sheets, which is free, which is one benefit. But the other benefit is I was then able to make standard Google spreadsheets to send to people every year. So they didn't have to keep the previous, because that was one problem is people were keeping the previous year's sheets, which didn't necessarily align with the new sheets. And I'd have to figure out like do versioning differences. And it was very complicated. But what you can do with something like Google Sheets, if you've got the technical know-how or want to Google the issue, is that you can create separate sheets that feed into a master sheet. And then as people fill their data in, your data just gets filled in automatically over time. Okay. And that's helped automate a lot of stuff for me. I can imagine. But what got complicated is a lot of people want to use eBird now. So I said, all right, if you want to use eBird, don't use a sheet. 
use eBird. I've got an eBird account for a data account for the Christmas bird account. Share your list with that account. And then I will then export all of the checklists as one big thing out of the, after I've added them into, you know, a column in the spreadsheet called eBird that just adds up everything. So I only have to do each species kind of once in that sheet. And then we're good. Now, the one complication is this year, eBirds removed some of that functionality. So I'm trying to work on a, I'm a programmer, so I'm trying to work on a tool that'll work with what they do have so that I can save myself and hopefully some other people some headaches on that because they don't have a great day export thing anymore for a day count. (laughs) Slight complication there. Yeah. That's great that you're you're trying to work through that on your own too. Uh, You'll have to keep me updated on that and I can update everyone else, but yeah. Kudos awesome. to you for, for trying that out. <laughs> well, I want to save myself the headache because I'm like, I know that at least locally people are really anxious about getting the data fast. Like they want it because, you know, some of those smaller bird counts, usually they just get together at the end of the day, have a dinner, have a little counting party kind of thing. And they know by the end of the day what the count was, but ours is so big. It hasn't had one of those. And it's on what is technically a holiday here, Boxing Day. So a lot of people are still getting together with their families at the end of the day. So there hasn't been a proper like dinner since probably the seventies, I think. And so, and sometimes I don't even get data from people for a day or two. Like if they've been out the entire day and then they're going off to their families, right. be a while before I get everyone's stuff, but everyone's always like, is the data ready yet? Is the data ready yet? There is a workaround in eBird. You can kind of go through and do a lot of clicking and find out what the totals are, but uh, that's going to be a lot of extra time during the holidays. So yeah. I'd like to reduce that now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I can imagine people are really excited after all the organization and going out and doing the counts and feeling like they've yeah. really helped and participated. Let me see the results. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, they always want to know just, you know, how are species doing now? Because that's something that changes over time a lot. We have locally had a lot of changes over the years in terms of how our species numbers populations are hmm. in both inclines and declines. Is there any particular species that you have noticed that? Oh, there's several. Yeah. (laughs) So for example, there's two that come to mind immediately, which is Carolina wren. And that species has been pushing farther and farther north over the decades. Interesting. So in the early, early, early days of the club, and I'm talking 1920s, there's an account I found of a Carolina wren being found in the city along the Niagara Escarpment that was the only one that had ever been seen in the region, I think. And it stayed around for a month and it made it to, I think, the Canadian Naturalist magazine, which is where I found this account of it, that one of the local birders, she had found it and called in like the club president of, at that time, it was called the Bird Protection Society. He was actually a wheelchair bound individual. So they had to help him up to this particular location that was an old radial line, kind of kind of like a rail line uh, to go up there and verify the species. Yeah, there's this whole accounting of it. And that was just one bird back then. And then over the years in the Christmas bird count data, another bird would show up once in a while and another bird. And then some years would be two and then there'd be nothing for years. And there'd be two again and there'd be nothing for years. And then in the eighties, it started being like, there's one and then there's two and then there's three and it starts creeping up and then there's 12. And then one year there's none for a little bit and then it's back again. And then since I think 2000 now, there hasn't been a year without them. And we're up to something like 300, 200, something like that being counted. Wow. So they are now like, they're here. They're here for good. Well, that's so interesting that the Christmas bird count data allows you to see that too. Yeah. And it's a very similar story with the red-bellied woodpecker here too. We have almost the same kind of pattern going on. Whereas 
well over 100 to 200 of them now showing up year to year. So, and it's still increasing. We're that's the record we beat almost all the time. And that's one thing people are often wanting to see the data. They want to see what records have we beaten this year. You know, which species have hit a record high, which ones have hit a record low. I've been able to easily use Google Sheets, you know, with some little Excel spreadsheet knowledge to, you know, hey, give me the highest one in the last 10 years. Give me the highest one in the last 25 years. So I know right away, have we hit a 10-year record, a 25-year record, a 50-year record, or an overall record? That's actually a good tip too for people who are organizing Christmas bird count data and and individuals who are doing Mm -hmm. the counts to make it kind of fun like that with the different data and to put that information out there just so that they're all aware too. Like, Hey, look, let's, let's see, kind of make this a fun thing afterwards looking at the data. Yeah. And so I I can also send you a link so you can put it on the show notes, perhaps like to our, our Christmas bird count reports, because when I started doing this, I actually started getting compliments saying these are the best reports in Ontario. And I was like, Oh, oh nice. okay. That's no pressure at all <laughs> to keep that going. <laughs> but yeah, I, Got some really great feedback from people who had been doing this for 60, 70 years who are really enjoying the reports because I had dug into the data to find those little things of like how many, you know, how many overall birds do we have? What's this compared to the average? What's the species compared to the average? What's who, what records are we breaking? And just all of that and little stories throughout. Oh, I, I would love that. I would love to put that on the show notes so that people could see that and and put some of the other resources that you have mentioned on there as well so that people who are planning on starting up or who already have them and want to kind of amp up their yeah. reporting skills, that would be really useful for them. Yeah. So I could probably also send you our forms from previous years if people are interested in copying those forms and making use of that format because that's something I could totally share. That would be just great questions I've learned over the years that are useful. That would be perfect. I'd really appreciate that. Great. Thanks, Rob. Yeah. So th- that is a really great example of sort of what the CBC data can be used for. But are, do you know of other ways too that the CBC data are used? Yeah. So if you go to the Audubon website, they have a section called the Bibliography for Christmas Bird Counts. Now it's a little out of date because there's nothing newer than 2016 in there. Okay. But like some examples of papers that have been published based on Christmas bird count data, which there's hundreds of, are things like the effects of urbanization on bird diversity and population and like the expansion of the house finch over the years. Like when it was introduced to the East, they were able to track that through Christmas bird count data. Things like effects of climate change on populations over time. Some other things. And I've seen that there's some that are, I would call kind of meta studies of Christmas bird counts themselves. So like, do people count better when the weather is a certain way, when there are certain types of groups of people and done in certain ways or how, you know, how they organize stuff, stuff like that. There's studies like that as well. Well, that's so perfect. Thank you so much for all that information and letting out the outline for what people need to get started with the Christmas bird count. No problem. So just to kind of recap too, the primary website that you should go to for the U.S. is the Audubon website. Yep. And for Canada is Birds Canada. Yep. Okay, perfect. And all they have to do is just look up the tab on those websites for the CBC and they can yep. get all the information there. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. Okay. And before we go, is there anything else that you'd like to mention that I forgot to ask you about that you want to let hmm. other people know about? 
Well, maybe we can describe a little bit of stories of what it's like to be in different types of Christmas bird counts. Oh, I'd love so, that. Because I think that's something that I found very interesting over the years. Like I mentioned, I coordinate the Hamilton one, and that is highly urbanized and a lot of people. So you almost never see other people unless you're, you know, pairing up with them out in the field for one reason or another. And like I said, you know, we do these things where we partner veterans with new birders and all that. One of the strategies we do for that is sometimes we have little areas where people meet together at the beginning of the day. If they're just, they don't care where they go, as long as they can go somewhere, we just say, okay, meet at this, you know, place at 7am and we'll pair up with someone who's going to be there and they just go out and do their thing. So, you know, and it's a highly urban area. So you can get lunch wherever you want, et cetera. It's pretty easy that way. But I've also done counts where kind of one from, for example, the Wonkton area where I grew up, where that's highly rural. There's a couple small towns and it's mostly country. So for me, that one is often a car birding outing. So you're driving around, stopping in areas, seeing hawks flying around. You're seeing snow buntings. You're seeing oh, uh, horned larks, all those things that are in fields and open air, you know, whereas in the city ones, it's more like you're seeing the different ones like, you know, feeder birds. And for our case, the more Southern Ontario birds like Carolina wren and a lot more woodpeckers and a lot more density because, uh, you know, there's not as much habitat for everything. So everything's highly densely packed. Whereas in a more open area, you're getting more spread out things and the birds are more smaller numbers, but it's more open air and stuff. So you get certain species. It just wouldn't be in an urban area at all. Like rough legged hawk, we almost rarely get in our count here, whereas up there, I usually see five or six. And then I've also participated in counts going further north in this case to a place called Tobermory last year, where it's a very Northern count. Like it is a lot like the counts would be in Northern Ontario or in extremely like remote regions where it's mostly forest. And that one is very different because sometimes it's a hunt for any birds at all because it's winter. It's not a place with a lot of abundance in terms of birds. So you're just lucky to find, you know, anytime you find any birds, you're just so happy to find something yeah. and they, they get, you know, 20 to 30 different species. Whereas further South in the more farm areas, they're looking at 40 to 50 species. Whereas down in Hamilton, we're looking at a hundred plus species because we got the lake, we got Lake Ontario. We got, you know, so all the water birds are there and right. that kind of thing. There's extra, there's yeah. A diversity of habitats here. Whereas up there, it was a bit less diverse, but also a lot colder, a lot more exposed, fewer niches. The feeders are very important in those counts. Okay. Um, so just getting house sparrows sometimes is amazing there because they mostly vacate the region. Oh, wow. At the time, you know, because it's so extreme there. So some years there's no house sparrows. So Wow. Gosh, yeah. what a novel concept. I can't imagine yeah. not having a house sparrow. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Outside. But we end up doing things like uh, the coordinate. I went with the coordinator last year and he was using a technique I'd never seen before where he's like, okay, I've got two sets of keys to my truck. What we're going to do is I'm going to let you off here. I'm going to drive the truck up a mile. You're going to walk up and you'll find the truck there with me gone because I'm going to start walking in the park and start walking. You get in the truck, drive, drive past me a mile, park, get out, keep walking. And that's how we do a road, for example, is just do this kind of leapfrogging that you get a few minutes of warmth in the car and <laughs> you get to cut, get that way with two people. You can walk the entire road with half the, you know, half the effort. That's really smart. Yeah. yeah. So neat little techniques like that. You don't, 
you'd never have to do that in more urban counts because you got enough people and you can spread everyone out. And in those more northern counts, you get those that would be probably referred to as kind of highway counts where you're just like <laughs> highway and logging road kind of counts where you're mostly long roadways because there isn't like trails and things like that. Right, right. So much so. Well, I, I love that you brought that up because I think that when people are trying to decide where they want to do a CBC count or where in that circle that has been allocated, they might want to target their yeah. results or their, or their survey, then that might be able to dictate, okay, this habitat or this location in the circle has these kinds of habitats and this one mm-hmm. has different kinds of habitats. So maybe they can focus their efforts or if they want to learn new birds or no yeah, particular exactly. birds really well. So that's a really great point. I love that. So yeah, those are the types of ones I've been involved with. So it's, it's, I'm sure there's other kinds out there too. I'd, I'd love to. So there's a couple of types that I, I find really fascinating, which I would say there's a couple of circles actually that I find really fascinating. One is the farthest north one uh, that's listed on the Audubon website is in Arctic Bay, Nunavut. Whoa. And it is 24 seven darkness, more or less. I mean, they get a little bit of twilight. There's an excellent blog post about the whole experience back in 2010 by uh, Claire Kynes, who lives up there. Him and his brother were the only two people doing that count. Ravens and maybe some eiders, if they're lucky, kind of thing. And that's wow. it. And that, then, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, is that mostly birding by ear then, if it's pretty much dark? Yeah, ear or just, there is a lot of snow. So the contrast of the bird on the snow will probably help some too. I see, um, sure. But yeah, it could be a lot by ear. And that's also something fun with Chris's bird counts is like, uh, it lets you exercise your skills in terms of birding by ear, finding those flocks, knowing the techniques of like, you know, locally here, for example, if you find black-capped chickadees, you're probably going to find other species mixed in with them. So you want to track them down, techniques like that. But another circle I find really fascinating that I'd love to try someday is the other Hamilton, I like to call it, which is Hamilton, Bermuda. The entirety of Bermuda fits within one Christmas bird count circle. That's how small that country is. Oh, wow. And um, theirs must be so fascinating because it's tropical. It's, you know, island. It's They get warblers and all these, spe- you know, wintering species there. So that would be a fascinating one to do someday. It really would be. And you should totally do a songbirding episode. If you ever decide to do that and <laughs> yeah, go yeah. down and do that, you should yeah, totally exactly. do an episode down Yeah, there. that's what that's one I'd love to try someday. I would, yeah, Bermuda sounds amazing. I would yeah, definitely exactly. love to visit all the birds there. Yep. Be awesome. Well, perfect. And actually, that's also a great segue talking about songbirding again. Where can people yeah. follow you if they want to hear your podcast and, yeah. and learn more about what you're doing? So you can find it on most of the podcast networks like Apple Podcasts, it's on Stitcher, it's on Spotify, all those kinds of things. You can go to songbirding.com and look it up there. We're on Twitter at songbirdingpod. So you can look it up there as well too. Okay, perfect. And I will make sure in the show notes that I link to your website and to some of the different episodes that you've put out as well. Some of my favorite ones that I've, that I've been able to listen to. Yeah. And uh, last year I did a couple Christmas bird count ones. So that was really fun to do. That was like a a goal I had early on. I was like, well, I got to do a winter one. It's going to be a little more tough because it's not as much necessarily singing, but there's a lot of sounds. So it takes more material to make something out of it, but still well worth it because you get a really different soundscape out of it. Yeah. Well, and I think it gives people who are, especially people who are just getting into birding, a really realistic expectation of 
just the difference in how birding transforms throughout the year. So I, yeah. I really appreciate it. Even if, oh, even if there aren't as many songs that, you know, you're yeah. hearing and whatnot, birds are a little yeah. more quiet. There's still a lot going yeah, exactly. on. Thank you so much, Rob, for joining me. I really appreciate you coming on no here and talking about the CBC and, and giving us all that information. Yeah, no problem. It was Perfect. a joy to be here. Well, thank you so much. Thanks. So there you have it. I'm so glad Rob took time out of his day to share with us everything he knows about the Christmas bird count, especially how to start one of your own. Don't forget to check out the show notes to follow his podcast, Songbirding, and to access those CBC resources Rob is generously providing us with. Thanks so much for tuning into the Birding Tools podcast, and I hope this material was helpful to you. To access information about the content I've mentioned in the show and the show notes, visit our website at birdingtools.com. Next week, I'll talk all about why wintertime is a wonderful time of year for birding and how to find the best wintertime birding spots near you. If you enjoyed this episode and want to get updates on the latest Birding Tools has to offer, subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening now. See you next time. Bye.